Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Luberton. I've been the frontman of the California Roots Orchestra Dust Bowl Revival for 10 years, and I've been touring in bands since I was 14, and I've always wanted to ask my favorite writers and music makers what really makes them tick. What makes them write the songs they write? This is my chance to find out. This week on the podcast, Robbie Folks. The Chicago-based troubadour has been making his own brand of sharp-tongued country music for over three decades now. We talked in an Oregon hotel room about how he considers Hank Williams to be the Shakespeare of American music, and how, as he's grown older, he's become more fearless and less embarrassed to confront America's past in his songs. As always, please stick around to the end of the show. That's where Robbie will play an original acoustic song, Alabama at Night. Let's go. I'm here with Robbie Folks here in... The middle of Oregon. How you doing? I'm doing real good, Zach. How are you? You know, it's a beautiful day out there. It's a great day in the neighborhood. I'm not wearing my overalls, though. I forgot those. Yeah, you are wearing something, for which I'm grateful, but I've got the overalls on for you, both of us. You never know when I'm in, a, you know, in, the, in the band hotel. The pants <laughs> usually come off. They're the first thing to come off. That's one of those things where it just you want to be free sometimes yeah. you know and the next thing is all dignity and restraint exactly what is the first thing that you do when you get home from a tour make a meal and open the newspaper i guess do you actually get the newspaper delivered yeah yeah i'm 55 i'm pretty old school you know chicago tribune chicago no new york times i'm one of those people that we took out a subscription after the election and uh like the day after i think and uh you know, when the subscription rate to the New York Times shot up so precipitously. and we're, Patriotic we're, duty. Exactly, yeah. You said the first thing you do when you get home is cook a meal and then read a newspaper. Is there a meal that you have to have when you get back? No, not really. I'm just usually pretty hungry when I get back for whatever reason. Even if I've eaten three hours before for some reason... Uh, well, it makes sense, you know. Most flights are a couple hours, and then it's an hour from the airport, and then an hour later you're eating something. So it just kind of works out. And uh, the house seems to be... I, I always feel like there's disarray to sort of start clearing up immediately. So I immediately open up the suitcase and put all the dirty laundry away and put everything away, suitcase back in the closet, sort through the mail, make little stacks, open the pit, just like a sense of... Um, countering the entropy a little bit that has risen in my absence. Not that my wife is a bad housekeeper or anything, but um, that's those are the first things that I do. And you're on the north side of Chicago? Uh, yes, sir. Wilmette, uh, Illinois, just on the border of Glenview. And you consider yourself a country music writer. I do, yeah. Right? And I, I love the quote that you said about, you know, it's a big damn country I might as well be a country musician. You know, it's like... Oh, I said that? It could be anything. A country mus musician could be 
you know, someone who lives in the South, which was what maybe we associate, or it could be someone who's writing about the country they're in and what's happening. And I'm oh, curious what you think the state of country music is now. Like, how does it make you feel? Uh, well, I'm no expert on it, you know. I pop in every now and then, usually unwillingly, like I'll just, you know, hit some some new song, and I, I don't like it. It's just not for me, you know. It hasn't been for me for a number of years. It's a little but slick, right? I mean, a little. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just, it's for somebody else. So I don't uh, exactly get upset about it, although I have to honestly admit that when, you know, when you hear something that, you know, you spend your life inside music, and so you naturally develop a set of aesthetic standards. And when you hear it being traduced or violated in, in, in a way that a lot of people relate to very strongly, uh, you almost can't help but wonder about, you know, where you're left standing. Uh, you know, it's not that I feel that I'm wrong when I hear something that's popular that I don't like. I just, uh, it, it does disturb me sometimes that so many people are consuming what I consider to be uh, uh, garbage, you know. I don't know why, but my official stance is that it doesn't bother me, and that uh, it definitely doesn't bother me as as a professional uh, musician because I get to do whatever I want to and make a living and make records that I want to make and not think about all that stuff. It's an option to think about that stuff, and if I if I never hear another modern country song, uh, I'm happy, you know. I'm curious about your song, uh, I Just Lived a Country Song. Mm. Can you read me the chorus for that? Uh, gosh, when you're not singing it, I know, it doesn't it's come right away. <laughs> this honky-tonkin' way of living. Uh, uh, shoot. This honky-tonkin' way of living. I've been living way too long. Excuse me if I'm late for heaven. I just lived a country song. Yeah, there's something about the ache in that song that I think really hits what country music is for me, you know, at least at the heart of it, you know, yeah. is sort of finding the the darkness within your own story and being able to admit it and confront it. You know, like, I'm so lonesome I could cry, which I think you mentioned mm. in the song as well, the Hank Williams song. It's like, it takes guts to actually say that out loud, that you're a you know, a dude up on stage saying how lonely you are. And I'm I'm curious, when you're out on the road in some old motel, do you ever feel like you could understand that essence of what Hank Williams was saying? Like, it feels pretty lonely out there sometimes, you know, in the middle of the country especially. I, I think uh, it's a pretty universal sentiment. I mean, I don't think you need to be guys like us to uh, relate to that idea. I think that song will be easily legible in 300 years. I mean, that's my guess. It feels to me as permanent as King Lear or any other, you know, artistic uh, apex that you can think of, that song. I, I just, I have the highest regard for that kind of writing. And I also think, uh, just kind of slightly free associating based on what you were talking about, that... If you even take the lyrics out of uh, out of these songs, out of uh, "I'm so lonesome I could cry," so it's three notes, but it's mostly two notes. It's a three-quarter time. 
You do the same to my last chorus that I just sang. Uh, so the point I'm trying to make is that just from that, without any words, I think you can tell that it's not modern country. It's um, it's harmonically and rhythmically, uh, you know, and in, in, in its repetitiveness, it's like something uh, a little bit antique. And so there's an attention span that's a little bit shorter now, but there's also down. It's got to be that kind of. That kind of feel is kind of paramount now, uh, the hip hop influence. Mm. So it's not an, it's not totally a matter of stories and words as a lot of people might think. It's a matter of uh, also of rhythm and and musical styles having changed, and uh, is unfortunately it's you know you you go into some of these older uh, grooves and it might uh, encourage some eye rolling. I mean, among younger people or at it, it, it at least places the song in an antique context, which, which is unfortunate to me because I feel like I, I live now and I want to relate to people right now, not mm. evoke something that's, you know, Cracker Barrel and Picket Fences. What was the uh, what was the first record you released? Well, like through the 80s, I, I did recordings, but I didn't, you know, I didn't tour and they weren't for sale. But in the late 80s, I joined a bluegrass band. And so I guess that would be my first... Special consensus. Sort of, yeah, exactly. Commercial thing was with them. And that was in 1989. My first solo thing was 1996. So you came to Chicago 1983 around yeah. then. It was because of a girl. Yeah. You got the facts right. Which seems like a country song. Right. Yeah. Well, and it is. It's a song called Georgia Hard that I wrote. I mean, it's like I've written about it a little bit about coming from the South and feeling uh, alienated in the big city. I, I think I feel like I've written four or five, probably written too much about that theme. But there's a song uh, off of uh, Upland Stories called Needed that mm. is pretty, uh, pretty emotional, pretty raw, you know, about this story of the young guy who has the the girl who gets pregnant mm -hmm. and this this line you know in her darkest hour she learned what young man would not do for love yeah which is such a powerful line i think for the song to really work you would assume that the narrator is addressing um a girl like his mm. his female child instead of uh, his male child because of the abortion thing that comes up in the song because that's what he wants his child to avoid is having the experience that he inflicted on somebody else a long time ago. So, and I don't have any girls, I have all boys. Um, but as far as uh, bringing dredging stuff up from your own experience, uh, you know, uh, harsh stuff or, or you know, just intimate uh, stuff, I do tend to, uh, sh I've always tended to shy away from that. And um, I've just uh, started to get more uh, loose about that Recently, um, and I don't know that it's a thought through or premeditated change, but it's definitely a change. And I would guess that it has something to do with uh, just being older. Like I feel myself to be uh, old, definitely less time ahead than behind. And that something that I can offer in my performance is just stuff that's happened to me over 55 years. Um, 
you know, especially conflict-ridden stuff or stuff with a disturbing angle to it or, uh, you know, because for me it's it's kind of over, you know. As at 55, there's not stuff left. There aren't new walls to bash in and there's not the self-protective garb that you wear when you're in your 20s or maybe 30s, you know, at least that was the case for me, uh, isn't really there anymore, you know. Not, not much can embarrass me anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I think I would have been, been embarrassed to sing about this stuff earlier, and I think I would have been more um, uh, hesitant to put myself in the position of the wise person singing about, uh, singing about hard experience. That always felt a little fishy to me, but... You know, now that I'm all wrinkled and stuff, it feels You're not that wrinkled. more natural. You can live to be 110, you know. I could, yeah. What did your uh, folks do? Uh, my dad was a high school teacher, and uh, my mom uh, kept house for a lot of years while he did that. And then after that, she was a Spanish teacher uh, at a college, Davis and Elkins in West Virginia. And now they're retired, and they live in Mexico. Oh, cool. You ever go down? Yeah. Hang out? Yeah, I was one, down once. And, and uh, yeah, it, it was surprising. I mean, it's just one of those things, you know, you can read about Mexico, and especially if you just read headlines that come up in the paper, you can get a totally different idea than when you just go there and, and hang out. How is it having grandkids? I've just had one, and it's fantastic. It's uh, pretty much everything that people say about it. It's all the cliches, <laughs> you know? You get to play with them, spoil them, uh, treat them nice, give them 100% of your attention, and then they go away back to their parents at the end of the babysitting session, totally in a bad mood, you know, over-entitled, over-privileged, and crying <laughs> and spoiled, and uh, it's great. So your newest record, uh, Wild, 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 uh, kind of like a honky-tonk record, feels like, with uh, Gail Lewis. Um, Linda Gail Lewis, yeah. And... Uh, how do you like collaborating with her? Great. Great. She's, uh, she's so much fun. Uh, any of the trepidation that you would have from thinking, well, she's Jerry Lee Lewis's sister. She grew up under his wing, and uh, it's going to be a little bit, you know, she'll whip out a pistol and pistol whip me at some point. You know, that, that didn't happen. You know, she is, mm, there's no danger. <laughs> Has she pistol whipped people in the past? She has... Um, mentally pistol whipped people <laughs> in the past by marrying a number of them, for one thing. Jerry Lee is still going. Jerry Lee's still, still touring, going strong. Right? 82. Have you met him? I've not met him, no. I think he's pretty, pretty uh, unmeetable, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you do have an in, in theory. I have an in, and he's uh, apparently he, he's voted for me on the Grammy ballot. He he likes the record. He gave us a quote for our publicity thing. So just that amount of nearness to him is kind of fun and thrilling for me. He's one of those people that I I, I kind of not sure I want to meet. You know. Yeah, keep the myth in place. I think so. Who did you? Uh, Who's your hero that, or a couple of your heroes that you don't even want to meet because probably Bob Dylan. Okay. Who was the person that first got you into writing songs? Well, the writing thing, uh, I've never enjoyed it a lot. And so for my first years of uh, performance, I wasn't writing all that much. And um, 
And also, I wasn't. It wasn't clear to me whether I'd be making my living as a guitar picker or as a, as what you know, as a songwriter or as a rock star or a bluegrass person or what. So it came and, much later. Well, I I wrote through the years just to have to, something to play in my act that wasn't covers of you know Carter Family music or something, and uh, and only I would say in my thirties when I worked as a songwriter, like I was on salary and spitting out songs. To me, that's the first time that I was actually kind of a songwriter, you know, to be paid for it and to be doing it, you know, most days of the week. Um, this is in New York? This was in Nashville, Nashville. in the uh, early 90s and uh, mid-90s. Yeah, before then, I mean, to be writing, you know, 10 songs a year or something and to be doing five of them with your band in a bar, I mean, I guess it's songwriting, but... I don't think that I was getting much better at it over those years. Do you have... But you asked who influenced... Yeah, uh, like who? who's... Is there a person that you heard, you know, that you were like, I'd like to start writing something like that? Or like, I could do that? I don't think so. So in those two periods, like before I considered myself... Before I was really a professional songwriter, I remember copying... Contemporary people that I liked, such as Marshall Crenshaw or or Joey Spampanato or uh, Lou Reed sometimes or Nick Lowe, not a lot of Nick Lowe actually, and uh, and then after I considered myself like into my thirties, and, and I wanted to get to the point where I almost didn't have any heroes. You know, you want to get to your own voice, and by the time I started doing it in the nineties, I I started getting to that point. I think. Um, so all of the, all of the people that are, you know, in me are just people that I listened to when I was 10, 20, up to 30 years old. But I don't think that I tried to impersonate anybody much after 30, 35 years old. Do you think like Chicago has rubbed off on you in some way over the last, God, it's what, 35 years you've been there? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I think it was maybe Letterman that was talking to Buddy Guy, where he asked about... Buddy Guy, that's who it was. Yeah. Chicago Blues. Yeah, Buddy Guy. And Buddy said, uh, I don't even consider it Chicago music. I consider it Mississippi music. You yeah. Know, that was an interesting uh, yeah. comeback to that. So there's uh, there's this uh, resistance to the idea that I'm defined by right where I happen to be living. And I certainly... I, I kind of want to resist that a little bit. I, I want to... You know, I don't want to say I'm a Chicago musician for some reason. Not because I don't think Chicago's a great city or, you know, I'm not proud of my city or whatever. Um, but uh, I, I don't feel like the music that I play is really strongly associated with uh, Chicago or its history. And I feel like I was, you know, at age 20, I feel like I was kind of formed by the time that I came there. Uh, musically and neurologically and lots of other ways mm. too. But I think you go through different lives as a musician, you know. Definitely, yeah. When you were playing in Special Consensus, did you feel you were a, a bluegrass musician or you were just in that sort of mode? Well, they were all almost a generation older than me. And I felt like I wanted to um, pound them into the present. And I felt like the present was um, New Grass Revival and a few other acts like that in the 80s. And so I wanted to, you know, have a strong voice in the arrangements and some of the material that we did and that we recorded, and I wanted to make it sound mm, just more exciting and fresh and now to my ears. So that's where I was, that's where I was coming from with that. 
I just um, talked to Tim O'Brien actually a few days ago in um, Rhode Island, and he, he was saying like when Hot Rise was in the '80s, and they were like somewhat radical at that point, you know, yeah. to certain people in the traditional bluegrass world. What was kind of out there and modern for them was like wearing crazy ties. Right, right. It was right. like we're gonna wear ties that have crazy patterns. It's funny, those people who are now old-timers, they still, and I do to an extent, also still retain this idea that, well, oh, the traditionalists are not going to go for this, what we're doing now. But these people are like 60, 70 years old now, and the people they're talking about don't really exist so much anymore, you know? <laughs> I guess there are, there are also some younger people now that are... Um, that might have a bone up their ass about, you know, how music's got to sound pure or something like that, or if it's bluegrass, it's got to represent something different and not have funny ties. But yeah, the guys, the older crowd now is the guys with the funny ties and the facial hair, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not the facial hair. You got the facial hair. Beards are, you know, they're very in right now. Are they? Okay. It just feels like easier. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Definitely easier. Though I see pictures of my dad from the 70s, I'm like, I don't think I'm going to go that far. Yeah? When he was down to his... I uh, mean, it was... The hair was big, like, everywhere. Yeah. It was just, like, hair. There was a lot of hair going on. Like the uh, <laughs> bass player from the Young Bloods, Like yeah. that guy? <laughs> How many days a year are you out? Uh, well, if I get a new thing out, then it's more, you know? But if I don't, you know, it's all in the range of probably 100 to 140 or something like that. What about you? About the same. Okay. I think we probably went a little too hard a couple of years ago, especially when the record came out. We tried almost 200 days out on the road with travel days. And eight people, you said? Yeah. How do you travel? What kind of... We usually fly in and take a couple minivans around uh, to a region, do a couple weeks on, and then, you know, a little off. Two minivans. Yeah. Backline, mostly, or...? Uh, we, we have the ability to bring our own drums and... Uh, how? Right. He, he has this thing where he can put all the drums in the bass drum. Oh, gotcha. And then he has a suitcase for the hardware. It's overweight usually, which can cost. But uh-huh. it's one of those things where like we have an eight-piece band. That's, that's the sound. So uh-huh. I think for some reason I've always been okay with the sacrifice to make it happen. I think it's starting to be one of those things where you're like, why did we do this? But... It's also like an awesome sound. You know, uh-huh. I've always liked big bands. You know, we have brass section. We have, you uh, know, it's like, it's like dark. a whole soul tent revival thing. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's great. And uh, it's a thing that when you get people going, it's, it's intoxicating. It's also kind of a bummer when people don't get going because then you have this big band making a big sound mm. and nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> and you feel like you're imposing on people because you're so loud, you know. If that's the worst thing that happens at your job, then you got a pretty good job, you know. Oh, they're not paying attention to me. <laughs> what was the last full-time regular job you had before you became full-time musician? Well, I was an office temp. Does that count? Sure. I mean, it wasn't, in a way, a full-time regular. So I quit doing that in 1993, I guess. Maybe two and a half years of office temping, and then three years of straight jobs in the 80s. And that's my non-music work experience basically straight jobs doing what i was a paralegal at a law firm in chicago and yeah and then some summer work you know during college whatever there's something kind of thrilling that i miss a little bit about being in the office and like 
waiting for the day to be over so you could get people in a room and play music. You know, it's like, it was like a secret that you had, mm. you know, like this illegal... Clark Kent and... Yeah, it's like this illegal little gathering that you mm. would have. Because I, I would actually get people in the advertising office in L.A. Like, when everyone would go home, I would sneak them into the office. You were in an advertising agency? Yeah. Wow. Well, production company. Okay. And they were totally cool with it. Like, my bosses were, like, music fans. But, like, if the main boss found out, I probably would have been fired. <laughs> you know. But there was something kind of, like, in so important about the music that it was, like, this thing that you had to do that I miss a little bit when you're, you know, out on the road doing it all the time. Oh, it's impossible to keep that. Once you start, once you go behind the curtain, you're there, you know, and you <laughs> yeah. can't, you can't get that wonderful uh, Garden of Eden uh, mystical love for it quite back again, you what know? What is the least glamorous thing about being on the road that you can think of? Besides the tiny bathroom, like, soaps that you have to, like, rip open in the shower. I don't know. I think it's kind of a tie between the night clerk that is difficult and the promoter who's difficult, you know? The and, night clerk, like the person you have to, like, settle up with at the end? I mean, the guy at the motel at one in the morning oh, yeah, yeah. who just uh, gives you a hard time for whatever reason, and it's right. a 40-minute check-in procedure. Um, and, again, these things aren't, you know, compared to a lot of jobs, uh, we should feel really, really lucky about it. I think the promoter that... Um, treats you poorly and is just, you know, rude and disrespectful. That's sometimes a little bit, you know, that gets me down sometimes. But it doesn't really happen that much, and it happens less now. And I think that's another great function of being older, in part, is that people don't tend to treat you as poorly. And uh, and maybe just having done it so long, too. I don't know, that having this trail behind you of records, I don't know. What's the scariest hotel that you can remember staying at? Uh, New Haven, Econo Lodge. Um, you didn't have to think long. No, it was pretty memorable. <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was beyond, what do I say to describe it? Uh, Death Trap? Just like, uh, the, the, they didn't have towels, but they had these little hand towels, which were damp and kind of gray <laughs> and on the floor. <laughs> and blood on the sheets, like Ooh. pretty fresh blood, and yeah, just uh, and then no uh, recourse, uh, you know, no complaints didn't uh, weren't entertained. They were not surprised that there was blood on the sheets. No, they weren't in the least. No, it's although we had bed bugs uh, the night before last. Now that I think of bed bugs are uh, bad. That's bad. So recently, yeah, yeah. What did you say to the to the night clerk? We filled out a form. She wanted pictures of it. Had only happened to one of us, and she wanted pictures of his naked chest, which he was, you know, happy to provide. <laughs> and uh, he's like, "Okay." And uh, he has some paperwork to fill out. I don't know what they're going to do with it. There's a a tune also off of, uh, I believe, off Upland Stories, "Never Come Home," mm. which I really enjoyed. Um, Thank you. Um, I hear them whispering my name late at night beneath my room. Can you give me that verse if it's not too hard to remember? Yeah, whispering. I kept listening to that over and over again. Uh, late at night beneath my room. The, Their voices rise as they grow drunker, black shadows gathering at my tomb, humbled by the ancient Jewish prophets, dazzled by the distant network feed, 
born by the promise of tomorrow. They'll bury me with all speed. I think that's the verse. It's very Edgar Allan Poe-ish. Oh, thank you. And you're kind of doing this like speak singing thing on some of that record, actually. It's a different song, but that song especially where you're almost narrating this ominous sort of story. Um, do you feel like what you're doing is sometimes more poetry than music, or is it like something that it's stories told through music? Um, that's another thought that I've resisted so much throughout my life, but have loosened um, on, and maybe it's almost saying the same thing that we were saying before about working from experience, you know, working poetically. But um, talking to Rodney Crowell one time, uh, I said, you know, uh, he was talking about uh, gaining Willie Nelson's favor when he was a young writer, when he was 23 or something, that Willie Nelson paid his song a great compliment. And uh, I said, was that the first time that you felt like a true songwriter? He said, no, I felt like a poet. And I... I, uh, I disagreed with that that view of it because to me it seems to imply that poet is above songwriter, and I don't feel that way uh, at all. I feel it's uh, I, I just feel it's different crafts. I don't know very much about poetry, I guess, and um, and I do feel I know about songwriting. So uh, obviously, songwriting makes use of uh, of, so, of some of the same tools. And uh, you know, repetition and uh, and uh, chiasmus and anastrophe and other rhetorical terms that I don't know, but uh, it makes use of some of the same tools. But the fact that there's that there's melody in it uh, makes it a a different beast. The fact that it's often for other people to imbibe and to regurgitate, you know, for themselves to sing, um, which is what I think is a successful song is when somebody else wants to sing it. You know, relates to it that strongly. And uh, and the fact that it goes by in real time is, uh, I would say, the third big separation from poetry. Let's do a creative exercise. Uh-oh. So when I say a word or a phrase, the first thing that comes to your mind, just, like, let it out. Mm. So I say, as the crow flies. As the crow flies... Oh, my God, I'm terrible at this game. <laughs> I already <laughs> waited 30 seconds. As the crow flies uh, northward, uh, the plane will land in 15 minutes. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> Venom. Snake. Dance floor. Dust. <laughs> Nakedness. Playboy magazine. Did you subscribe? Uh, no, and the second thing I think of is death camps. So, oh. <laughs> see, this is why we do this exercise: humiliation or eroticism and nakedness is what I guess I think of. Have you ever been over to Germany? No, I never was there. The uh, the concentration camps, you know, are like tourist attractions now. You know, uh-huh. like I went to Dachau, uh-huh. which is like one of the first ones they set up, uh-huh. and like people bring their fa- families. For like picnics. Oh my goodness! You know, because it's like you know, it's like a historic monument now. What's your opinion of that? Do you think that's a happy uh, progression? I think it's interesting. I think it's natural, and in some way, it's it's something that, especially German people, are have to confront on a you know 
national level where it's like this is something that is all over our country and we're remembering respectfully. Mm -hmm. I think it's a little bit of a juxtaposition that is uncomfortable where people have their kids and they're running around and having a nice time, you know, because, you know, they're little kids. They don't know what's going on. They just, they see some grass and some shacks, you know, that are actually the rooms with the ovens in them. But it's interesting that you went from Playboy to (laughs) (laughs) to the concentration camps. There's a line in another of my songs, and I wish I could remember it exactly. It's a slightly older song called The Many Disguises of God, but it's uh, something about um, a a field, an overgrown field, and then the line after, uh, where families once gathered to die. And uh, it reminds me of the what you're saying about the land being reused by the living much later because that's pretty much exactly what I had in mind in writing that line and so I guess uh, it expresses my idea that life is for the living and so you know to use um, a factory that used to produce a, um, a poison gas to kill people or to you know uh, move into a house where the last owner killed his mother and buried her under the floorboards, it's uh, uh, at once a reasonable thing to reuse this this matter that has sinister overtones, but it's also unavoidable to feel that land and matter somehow retains a memory because, I mean, uh, at the most general level, like all, all of these things, we're composed of the same things as matter. We're composed of atoms, and so the idea that trees remember, that land remembers, that houses and walls remember isn't really as insane as it may seem at first. Have you ever seen a ghost in an old house or hotel? That you stay no, in? never have. Do you think they're real or do you think part of our imagination? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that they're real in the sense that a sandwich is real, but maybe I'd change my mind. If Sandwiches I aren't real? It's an experience. <laughs> I'm saying sandwiches are. Okay. Yes. <laughs> So you're playing a set tonight. When you get up on stage, do you feel like you put on a persona? Yeah, definitely. I'm sorry, I interrupted. This is, you know, when you do a podcast in a strange hotel, this is what happens. That was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on one second. Sure. I'll hold down the podcast. This part will be edited out where Zach goes to the door <laughs> and speaks to the housekeeper. He's taken off. She's taken over the podcast. She's a bubbly housekeeper. Yeah. <clears throat> Luckily, there's no blood on these sheets. You know, it's a pretty nice <laughs> hotel. It's not bad. It's fancier, I think, than mine across the street. What was I saying? Oh, yeah, you get on stage. Do you give yourself a persona like, I'm this guy in overalls who's going to play some old-time sounding songs, and I'm going to bring you into this world? The overalls I don't wear all the time. It's just, it just, it's just a good-looking pair now. of overalls. Uh, I'm so glad we're not playing that word association game anymore. I really didn't like that for some Gravestone. reason. Gravestone. I didn't ask you all of them. Gravestone. Uh, yeah, bluegrass <laughs> music. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's a different persona, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's I consider the best version of me, you know, or the most presentable version of me, you know, which 
I'm not the best conversationalist or the best date or the best. It's your best self when you get uh, on stage. Yeah, the best you know guy hanging around the house, you know, in your dirty old everyday clothes, trying to deal with the kids and the stresses of everyday life. But on stage, I'm in control. I'm doing some. I'm presenting something that I've worked on and gotten to as high a shine as I can get it, and uh, it usually feels pretty good in that respect. We should probably figure out a way of playing a song. Unless there's an acapella song we should do. Yeah, let's... Uh, go, you, you know, the go. two things i got to do in this hour are get a bite to eat and restring my guitar, and they'll take the better part of an hour. Oh, that's true. But if... Um, so what should we do? Well, let's see. You're, you, you could play the, you play the song and then restring your guitar. Unless you feel like the strings are just garbage at this point. You want to walk over there? Yeah, let's walk over okay. there. Okay. Actually, I can... Even faster, I can drive you over there okay yeah that'll save a minute and a half <laughs> this is the show on the road this is Zach Lupiton hold that thought for a song from Robbie Folks. Eric Tailhawks had watchful at the faded edge of day the phone poles and the pines rose from the scoured clay the sun was slipping toward the golf in its own good time And you would not think of death If you drove on past the signs The old men at the roadhouse were in too polite to stare well, Where we'd come from wasn't home And we were far from even there The cab around my neck drew suspicious eyes to me When their faces had said nothing Was that I stepped outside And in the instant I knew I would not forget the sight Alabama at night Alabama at night Sunlit rooms, the wealthy walk, and the pale unshaven men to stand before each frame 
five seconds, maybe ten, to unveil all the maker wanted to portray. But I'm not there to talk, and if I were, I wouldn't say. The cross of rough cut branches in the wide gray shadowed sky. A child not far from birth, with the end etched in her eyes. The morning star above her and him upon the breeze. The poor is no sacred song. Poor is a disease. And no hand reaches down from heaven, and no one denies it might. So patiently we wait here as onward it rolls, Alabama at night, Alabama at night, Alabama at night. big thanks to Robbie Folks. You can go to RobbieFolks.com for his tour dates and his blog, also to BluegrassSituation.com for past features on Robbie, including an article about his newest record, Wild, 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 which he wrote and produced with the wonderful Linda Gale Lewis, that's Jerry Lee Lewis's sister. The show on the road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love the show on the road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the bluegrasssituation.com. The show on the road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lubiton. See you on the trail. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.